0: Realm Presents Tales Beyond Time, Episode
1: 30
2: Hello, fellow travelers, and welcome back to Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm. I'm Marco Palmieri, your host for more amazing adventures. This week, we're bringing you a pair of uplifting fantasy stories from writers Kate Elliott and Karen Lord. Kate Elliott is one of the most prolific feminist voices in speculative fiction, and her coming-of-age fantasy about self-empowerment, making the world live again, was first published in 1997 as part of the Daw Books anthology, Zodiac Fantastic. It's narrated for Realm by Rachel Fulgenetti. A girl on the verge of adulthood takes control of her own fate when she chooses the temple over marriage. My friends, I give you making the world live again.
0: Like a creature out of the old stories, caught between earth and sky... Eily stood with mud coating her feet, and the sun rising at her back over the endless tidal flats and marshlands. he i he she sang. Before the first grass grew out of the mud, before the first tree grew from the ground, before people sprouted from the earth, before the first house was built, before the first village came to be, before the first city was made, the sea existed, nothing else. Then Eridu was built. Mud splashed her ankles as she danced. When I'm a woman, I'm going to travel to Eridu and see the big temple for myself. If you don't get back in the boat, said her brother, we'll get home late. Then the only place you'll be going is to dredge the old canal with the slaves. And I'll take the dates with me, she retorted, laughing. Not if you don't get in the boat. Eile swung a leg over the side, balanced the basket of dates against her hip, then slid in as her brother pulled off. Thick with reeds on its shoreline, the low island hillock was crowned with a cluster of date palms, whose bounty they had just harvested. The palms broke the flat expanse of water that glittered under Anu's morning rays. Look, said Indu, as his eyes swept the shore where Eily had danced and sung. Some animal's been hurt. Do you see the blood? He pointed with the pole as the boat slewed round in the water. A few drops of bright red blood spattered the muddy verge. Heee-eye, he muttered. What kind of sign is that? Should we tell the priest? As they stared, a swell of water eased over the tracks Eily had left, obliterating all trace of her passing as well as the mysterious blood. Huh. Ailey grunted, dismissing it. It's nothing to do with me. She set down the little basket of dates and settled her feet on a pile of rushes left by the last occupant. A whole city built all of bricks. What do you think of that, lazy Indu? He grinned, teeth a bright flash against his face. Indu had been blessed by the gods with an endless capacity to be cheerful. I think it would take some poor artisan many long days to make so many bricks, and some other poor sore-backed laborer would have to lift them all up into place. She snorted. You're always going to stay in the village if that's all you can think about. I can think of things much more interesting than the big temple at Eridu, which such as us will never see the inside of, no matter what we do. Her breech clout had caught under her thigh, She hitched herself up and tugged it free. Like all girls, she wore a bare leather cord around her waist. She ran her fingers along it now, tracing it. When she became a woman, she would get to decorate it with beads, shells, and feathers, to show she was of marriageable age. Indu had become a man last year at the New Year festival, so he could wear a man's kilt over his breech clout a length of cloth wrapped at the waist and reaching to his knees. hee she exclaimed as the marsh flies swarmed round them. Not even a breech cloud could protect against stinging flies and all the other voracious bugs that loved the marshlands and tidal flats. Can't you move us any faster? These flies will eat me down to the bone. Rain's coming. Indu shielded his eyes from the sun as he peered eastward. Rain comes almost every day in the winter, Master Wisdom. He only laughed and lowered a hand to trail it in the water. Expression brightening, he shoved the pole into her hands, then touched a finger to his lips for silence. She pulled while he fished. His hand trailed in the water as the boat skimmed along almost noiselessly. Reeds brushed its wood belly. In her hands, The pole dipped and rippled through the water as quietly as a heron's stocking. This boat, made of wood, floated down from the faraway place called Upriver, was the visible mark of their family's prosperity. Indu darted forward, hands clapping together under the water. He twisted, and a silvery perch flew through the air to land in the belly of the boat. It flopped around until Eile took a clay net weight and clubbed it on the head. Indu smiled triumphantly, and they pulled on while he trailed a hand again through the water. Birds sang among the rushes or called to each other. She knew their voices. The harsh crow, the cheerful ducks, the croaks of night herons settling into their daylight nest, a cormorant stood on a sandbank, wings outspread. Indu darted again, twisted, and flipped another fish into the boat. In this manner he caught five sea-perch before the shoreline came into view. Reed houses, their entries framed by thick pillars woven of reeds, marked the farthest limit of the village, which was set on the high ground above. Beyond them, under the shade of date palms, Eily could see the square block of the mud-brick village shrine, set below the levee, just outside the village. A stand of pines grew along the banks of the Big Canal, and several small plots of cultivated land lay between the village and the marshlands—lentils, flax, and herb gardens. Her mother squatted in the garden, thinning the onions. In the village, women sat before their houses. Some wove reeds into baskets and mats. Others painted pots or hunched over a grinding stone, while their young daughters laughed and chatted behind them spinning flax to thread and watching over the smallest children. The men would be dredging the canal against the spring floods or weeding in the grain fields out in the irrigated lands or watching over their sheep. Day in, day out, year in, year out, Ily watched them plant and harvest, bake pots over fires and paint them and then bake more, cook, fish, bury those who died, birth babies and take offerings to the temple it was always the same. There's nothing new, exclaimed Ily. Same old village, same old work, same old people. How can you be so cheerful? Nothing new. The sun is new each day. New water flows down the river each day. Every year we grow new crops. Same old crops. I want to see the world. Indu grinned and gestured toward the sky where clouds moved in from the east like sheep headed homeward. Then at the marsh behind and the village ahead. The world is here, the world is where you and I are. Oh, You'll never understand. Disgusted, she stood in order to pull the boat precisely in against the earth jetty. he Indu leaped out of the boat and into water that lapped his knees. The boat rocked wildly under Eily. But she steadied it quickly as she stared at her brother, now gone crazy. He splashed up to the shore and ran toward their mother. Ninima! Ninima! Come quickly! Two pigs, foraging on the verge of marsh and land, ambled over to investigate. Ahead, her brother was gesticulating, talking to their mother with wide, sweeping gestures of his hands, yet careful in his excitement not to touch her. It was only when Eili had settled the boat and brought it up beside the jetty that she looked down to see what had so startled Indu. Blood stained the wood bench where she had sat. It had not been an animal's blood at all, on the marsh hillock where they'd gathered dates. It had been hers. Ninni Ma sent Indu off to the little temple house to warn the priestess, and then came over to Eily. She chased off the pigs. Then helped the girl out of the boat and leaned in after to touch her finger to the smear of blood on the bench. Touching the blood to her tongue, she considered its taste with great seriousness, while Eily watched her apprehensively. Ninima was very old-so old she had a living grandchild who could already walk and talk, and Eily was her youngest child. But to Eily's eyes, the white ringlets in her mother's coarse black hair represented just another sign of her great strength and wisdom. Stout of body, she had sharp black eyes in a face wrinkled from endless hours working under the Anu's bright rays. Eily couldn't remember her looking any other way. Maybe one day she'd look like that, but she couldn't imagine being so old. Ninima smacked her lips and nodded. First blood, she said with satisfaction. Your time has come, Eily. Now you'll be a woman, and we can accept that offer of six sheep and the brindled ox from Natum's family as your bride price. He-i, Eile jumped out of the boat. Marry Natum? Natum is a good boy, scolded Ninima. Eily made a face, but since it was true, she couldn't disagree. Why can't I go to the big temple in Eridu? Ninima snorted. You and your talk of the big temple in Eridu. I know what you dream about, but your father can't afford that kind of dowry, nor your brothers the upkeep it would cost every year. She had practiced this response for a long time now, ever since her father and Natum's father had first spoken of a marriage contract between her and the young man. You've no one to marry after me, Nini Ma. Think of what a fine honor to our family it would be to send me to be a servant of the goddess at the temple in Eridu. Ninima only grunted, but that was enough for Eili. I know you'll convince father. Huh, don't pester me. You walking all the way to Eridu. But she had that secret little half-smile on her face. She had some things of her own, did Ninima, certain beads and precious shells, a copper knife, and even a few rods of silver tucked away that could be added to her husband's wealth to make up a dowry for the temple. At least it would relieve me of all your questions day in and day out. But you must go to the priestess now. I'll speak to her of this. There'll be some kind of test, to see if you're suitable. Eily wasn't afraid of any test, but she knew better than to say so out loud. After all, the demons might be listening and hatch a plan to ruin all her hopes. Her mother tossed the fish into her basket with her thinned onions, then set the smaller basket of dates on top of them with a frown. With an efficiency that betrayed long years of practice, she bundled up the rushes that lay in the bottom of the boat. Come, girl, all this you've gathered today will have to be offered to the goddess. Even the fish? Indu caught the fish. That fish could poison the men if they ate it. A girl's first blood is very powerful, almost as powerful as birthing blood. So you come with me and don't touch anything, or look at any men. I'll have to scrub down the boat, and even then, the priestess will have to purify it before your brothers or father can go out again in it. She clucked her tongue between her teeth, thinking no doubt of the gifts they'd have to lay on the offering table so that the priestess could do all this work. Any change in life brought a great deal of trouble with it. Everyone knew that. Demons hovered round all the time, though no mortal person could see them, and waited for people to do something wrong. That was where they got their power from. She and her mother gathered up everything that had been in the boat, even the old rushes, and carried them together to the temple. Ninima announced loudly to every passer by that Eily had started with her first blood, so men would know not to look at her and possibly get themselves hurt. Eily had to keep her gaze on the dirt, once colliding with a pig, but it was better once they arrived in the temple precincts. Here she didn't have to stare at the ground. The priestess was very holy, and the old priest powerful enough that women's blood wouldn't burn him as it might an ordinary man. At the gate that led into the courtyard, the priestess met them. A fringed skirt and a woven winter shawl with shells and beads sewn into it, draped over her arms. Silent, she dressed eily in these garments, then permitted the girl to enter the temple precincts carrying the offerings. While eily hesitantly walked into the empty courtyard, the priestess remained at the gate to speak with her mother. Eili waited until the old priest emerged from the temple itself and beckoned her inside.
1: Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story. Dark Dice. A horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts.
0: Eiley had never been in the temple before. Like any house, it had a packed dirt floor, but there the resemblance ended. It reeked of incense, juniper, and myrtle. The walls had been whitewashed, and in each niche a bright painting flared, like an animal caught in life—a lion— A bull, a twining scorpion, an ibex with its curling horns. There, in the center, stood the offering table, and at the far end, illuminated by a high, open niche in the wall, rested the altar with a number of small clay figures sitting on it. She tried not to look too closely. What if she wasn't strong enough to see such things? What if the goddess's power struck her down? She tried to keep her gaze on the dirt floor, but couldn't help sneaking peeks. The priestess returned, looking grave. She indicated to Eily that she was to set the offerings on the table. The girl set them down carefully. The dates, the basket of sea perch and onions, and the rushes bundled into a sheaf. Then the priestess led her outside to the back portion of the courtyard, enclosed by the same man-high mud-brick wall. Here stood three small reed huts, as well as a hearth-fire ringed by stones, a small earth platform with a grindstone and clay pestles, and a flat stretch of ground patterned with small holes where, in the dry season, a ground loom would be pegged out. One reed structure, more of a lean-to, rested up against the wall. The priestess gestured to her to go in, and Eile ducked under the low threshold inside it was dank and musty strong-smelling with the scent of women's magic she hesitated wanting to ask what was expected of her but the priestess's footsteps whispered away over the dirt she was alone there wasn't much to look at even a poor man and his family lived in a better house than this a big mat of palm leaves and sticks woven together and leaned against the mud-brick wall to form a shelter A few narrow holes had been drilled through the thick wall. Peeking through them, she saw slivers of the village beyond, just enough that with her knowledge of the buildings, she could piece together the hole in her mind's eye. She heard pigs grunting as they rooted through a midden, and the laughter of children. A hush-like pattering feet rose up from the marsh. The rains had come. They swept over the village, drumming on the dirt. Rain leaked through the reed canopy above her to drip on her bare shoulders. It was cool, and she shivered, crouched down to wrap arms around knees and tighten the shawl over her shoulders and hair. Her belly ached. Blood dripped from between her legs to dampen and blend with the musky earth. The rain moved off. No one came. She heard the ordinary sounds of life around her, but nothing else. Nothing unusual. Nothing new at all. It was a long day waiting. And when dusk shuttered down with its quick hand and Anu sank westward into the underworld, she even got a little scared. She, eily who was scared of nothing and wanted to know everything. Maybe being a priestess wasn't such a good thing after all, if it meant sitting alone in huts all day and night. Maybe it would be better to marry Natum. Eilie, the whisper came to her through the drill holes. She squinted out through them, but it was too dark to make out more than shadows. What is that? Who are you? Could it be a demon, speaking in a voice meant to sound human? She didn't recognize the voice, and couldn't even tell if it was man or woman, muffled as it was. The great serpent is out tonight. Hei, you're scaring me. (laughs) You're safe, you're safe, woman, the voice replied, and then laughed softly. A pleasant sound that made her feel easier. You're on the island, the first island, the old island. You're protected by its magics and the power of your first blood. You belong to the goddess while you stand on her sacred ground. Go outside and tell me what you see. She rose, groaning with the stiffness in her legs, and ducked out under the threshold. Outside, she looked around. It was hard to see anything but shadows, though she could easily make out the square temple walls that loomed beside her. Then she looked up and gasped. Above, a winter shawl of brightness cloaked the sky. She didn't look at the stars much. Usually, she was asleep by now. I see the stars, and there, there's the moon. It was thin and curved, like a clay sickle. What are the stars? Eily opened her mouth, then stood there, gaping up at the stars. I don't know. They're stars. They're the light by which the gods feast in the temple up in heaven. Watch the stars said the voice, and nothing more. Eily hissed between her teeth, angry at these riddles. She heard nothing, not even footsteps rustling away. But the voice did not speak again. And now, as her irritation faded, she became curious. What were the stars? She watched for as long as she could keep awake, shivering in the cold night air. Like Anu the stars rose in the east and set westward, rolling down into the underworld. Finally, she returned to the hut to curl up in a dry corner and sleep. In the morning, the priestess brought her water to wash and a bundle of leaves to soak up the blood, though there wasn't much. She brought bread as well, served on a plate with dates and freshly baked sea perch. How long will I stay here? Eily asked but the priestess only smiled in her grave manner and handed her a spindle and flax so that she could spin. In this manner, she passed a tedious day in solitude. That night, the voice came again. What are the maize? it asked her. The maize are the spirits that govern the decrees the gods make. Everyone knows that. Her belly ached a lot right now, That and these stupid questions made her grumpy. If the voice could hear her bad mood, it took no notice, but went on. The great serpent troubles the world, wanting to return everything to the old sea, which was all and everywhere before the first creatures came to be. But the maize keep order. The stars keep order. He, I... She forgot about her aching belly as a flood of questions came to her tongue. "How do the stars keep order? Are they maize? Are they also spirits?" "Watch the stars, curious one; watch the stars, you who know everything there is." Now the voice sounded amused, and Eily knew it could not be a demon. Demons didn't know how to be happy. She crawled out of the hut and watched the stars. To her amazement, she recognized some of the patterns. At least some, then, were the same as they had been last night. Bright torches flung up into the heavens, a sickle-like head traced in stars, a cluster of six bright stars, like a handful of shining pearls, just above a pair of horns, a wagon and curved shaft, two bright stars standing close together, as might a sister and brother, she and Indu. The moon, like Indu, had been eating and had gotten a little fatter. The next day the priestess brought food again, bread, fish cakes, and beer, and graciously allowed her to spend the day grinding Emmer into meal. The next night she waited and waited, but the voice didn't come. At last she curled up and fell asleep, only to be woken suddenly by a low chuckle and a hissing like a snake. She jumped up, horrified. With the wood plate as a weapon, she slapped the floor around her to kill any snake or scorpion that might have snuck in and curled up under her mat. But the hiss came from neither snake nor scorpion. When comes the new year? The question startled her, and she stood flat-footed, wood plate dangling from her fingers, and considered, She had never before given much thought to when the new year came, only that the priestess always told them when the time was right to celebrate. But she wasn't willing to reveal her ignorance so easily. Soon? It comes soon. When? Maybe it was a demon questioning her. Only demons would be so persistent. Right before the floods come. When will the floods come? Did this voice know how to speak at all except to ask her questions she couldn't answer? Soon, I said. When, the voice repeated, without changing its patient tone. How does the farmer know when to harvest? When the grain is ripe, of course. In this same way, the stars tell us when it is time to make the world live again, to bury the old year and give birth to the new one. This was a long way from ripening grain. She had to set down the plate in order to think about it. How can the stars tell us that? It was very late. She saw now that the first faint lightning had come, the waking breath of Anu, the sun. Peering out through the drill holes, she tried to see who was talking to her, but she could see only shadows. When she ducked outside, the priestess came to meet her in the gray light of dawn, carrying a bundle of rushes. He, I, she did not need to ask what today's work would be. But she had never minded weaving mats. She liked the way the single strands wove together to make a solid hole, whose pattern she could read and trace with her fingers. When dusk came, the priestess led her up the stairs set against the temple wall. Several mats lay on the flat roof, And with some apprehension, Eily followed the priestess over to them, and gingerly sat down cross-legged, imitating the woman. Look there, said the priestess, pointing to the zenith, the sky directly above them. And at once Eily knew who had questioned her the past three nights. Overhead shone a sickle of stars. That is the lion's head, said the priestess. A lion's head? Eily could see it now, traced for her. The proud neck and head of the fearsome king, who prowls the heavens unafraid. The lion rules this sky. You see there, the lion has defeated the bull, who sinks into the underworld together with Anu. Pointing to the western horizon, the priestess traced another pattern of stars, just below the waxing sickle of the moon. There lies the sevenfold one, and the horns of the bull. See how they die now, with anew? But won't they rise again tomorrow night? As the deep twilight darkened into full night, the horns of the bull sank beneath the horizon, lost to her view. No, the bull has died, killed by the lion. The priestess pointed overhead again, then to the horizon the gateway to the underworld. Eily could not contain a gulping gasp, a sudden tremor of fear. Suddenly those questions about the great serpent devouring the world and returning everything to the all-encompassing sea seemed much more frightening. If the stars could die, then perhaps the world was about to come to an end. Is the bull gone forever, then? The priestess smiled. Only to rest until the new year. Until the new year? But how do you know when the new year comes? The priestess did not speak at once. Eily stared, gapemouthed, at the stars. In about forty days the bull will rise in the east at dawn. That is how we know to celebrate the birth of a new year. The bull brings the new year. Our duty as servant to the gods is to maintain the order of the world, to celebrate Akitil at the proper time, the power of making the world live again. What would happen if we didn't celebrate it?" It was very dark now. Below the sickle head of the lion Eily could see its bright heart, brightest of the stars in its body. A cold wind blew up from the marshes, sowing through the palms. The deep, croaking call of the night heron sounded from the canal. The Great Serpent waits for us to make a mistake. It is also our crimes, our faults, our errors, which let loose the Great Serpent. That is why the gods have set the Four Corners of the Year as pillars, so that we may help defend the world against chaos. The Four Corners of the Year. With a flash of insight, Eily remembered the four animals painted on the niches within the temple. The lion, the bull, the scorpion, and the ibex. Ah, said the priestess with approval. But how do we make the world live again at Akitil? What? You don't know everything, Eily. I thought everything was old for you. Nothing new at all in this old place. Isn't that what you tell your mother every day? Eily wiggled on the mat, trying not to bounce up and down in her impatience and her excitement. I didn't know about all this. The priestess chuckled. Do you want to learn? Yes, yes. But I warn you, you'll have to be attentive. There's much to know you haven't discovered yet, and more to learn than you can learn this year. Or perhaps in your entire life." The priestess spoke with laughter in her voice, but Eile ignored it. Are all the four corners of the year set in the stars? Then where is the scorpion and the ibex? Only wait, child, only wait. You have learned a great deal for one night. I am an old woman and easily tired, and it will rain soon. You may escort me to my bed and sleep on a pallet beside me. If you wish. Then I may stay here, in the temple? The question caught in her throat, and as soon as she uttered the words, she was sorry to have said them. He, I, how brash of her to presume so much, to ask such a thing of the priestess. But the priestess only wrapped a corner of her shawl more tightly around her, as the wind brought a spattering of rain over them, on their silent perch. Of course. Who else would answer all your questions? I have already spoken to your mother about your dowry. With that, they picked their way along the spine of the roof and climbed carefully down the stairs to the silent temple yard. The priestess made her bed in one of the stout reed huts. But Eile could barely sleep for excitement. The wash of a late rain over the village woke her. She listened to the night calls of birds, to the honking of geese and the barking of dogs. Each insect click, each drip of water startled her back awake, her mind tumbling all its new thoughts over and over. If only she could weave them into a pattern! In the morning, as soon as the dawn washed to pink and the first herons glided over the marshlands to stalk their prey, she was up and outside. With a stick she drew lines in the dirt a picture of a lion grappling with and defeating a bull. She glanced up at the sky, but anew had washed it clean of stars. Clouds moved in from the east. She sat back on her haunches, thinking about the four corners of the year. With a palm leaf she swept clear a patch of dirt, and then drew a square with four corners, and in each square, as in the niches in the temple, traced the rough outline of an animal. Here, at the new year, the bull. Here for the high, hot summer, the lion. For the late dry spell, the scorpion. For the winter rains, the ibex. A shadow eased across the dirt shading her, and she turned to see the priestess standing behind her with a slight smile on her ageless face. Yee, I restless one, is your heart now content? No, not at all, cried Eily, without thinking. Do all the stars have names? Ah, said the priestess, in the tone of a woman who has opened a box and found the finest pure lapis lazuli shining within. The gods have many decrees set upon the world so that we can maintain order against the great serpent. Can you remember them all? Eily nodded, But her attention had already wandered back to her picture. It isn't quite right, she muttered, as she thought about the bull sinking into the underworld, only to appear again in the east forty days later, as it would every year. The priestess squatted beside her and gently took the stick from her hand. The woman drew a straight line from bull to scorpion and lion to ibex, then a curved line that linked them all in a circle. It's a wheel, murmured Eily. She touched each animal in turn. The four corners of the year are a wheel that turns around each year. It always comes back to its beginning. Making the world live again. The priestess was smiling as Anu's light spread over them in a wash of brightness, bringing a new day. What? No questions, restless one? But for this once, Eily was too filled with wonder to reply. After all, there would be many more days and nights in which to ask questions.
2: Curiosity is sometimes described as a curse, a trap for the unwary or the reckless. But for many, it's the key to wonder, to possibilities unimagined, and to a life truly well-lived. Our second tale is from Barbadian writer Karen Lord. Her lyrical Afrofuturist story, Cities of the Sun, was originally published in 2019 in the anthology New Daughters of Africa, and is narrated for Realm by Robin Miles. It explores the power of story itself, what happened, and what will happen, in truths, not facts. Please enjoy Cities of the Sun.
3: The minister's secretary leaned forward and said, We need a story. The historian blinked. Ah, propaganda. The secretary drew back. Why would you say that? He demanded, but his indignant stare shifted for a fraction of a second as if distracted by a slight and unexpected prick of shame. The historian looked away, gazing instead at the pictures that bloomed and faded on the windows in a persuasive, soothing cycle. Faces, earnest faces of earnest people, asking to lead or to be allowed to continue leading. Words, slogans really, full-scale ideologies and intentions, Condensed to a glance sized moment. It was a very festival of decoration, enhanced by the occasional glint and glitter as the solar cells in the window panes adjusted with minute efficiency to capture the sun's rays. Not unexpected in a ministry office, but these days she would see the same at the train stop, the fish market, anywhere that had walls and a large audience. What would you like to tell the people? The historian asked kindly. The secretary leaned forward again, but with caution, only halfway. Tell them how we got here and tell them where we're going and how you'll take us there, your manifesto. She chuckled at his annoyed expression. I'm sorry. I'm a bit of a cynic these days. You want me to present our history and our future in a package like this. She waved a hand to the political messages, translucent, unobtrusive, yet insistent. If you can, the secretary replied stiffly. He stood, gave her a nod of stern farewell. And that was the end of the meeting. The historian walked out into the daylight and paused to bask in the dappled glory of Heroes' Square. Trees, natural and enhanced, filtered the sun with hungry leaves and eased the reflected brightness of the glass towers of a modern city. People moved within the innards of each building, dark pulses of collective life in constant motion, as hungry as the leaves. And as numerous. What kind of retelling would move those crowds of singular souls from follow-foot compliance to fullness of choice? I can try, said the historian to herself. They say I should tell it like it happened, so that the facts aren't forgotten and the cities can rise again. I say no, If we want people to walk this path again, we have to tell more than facts. We must tell truths, root deep, tree-tall testaments to understanding. Because who knows who will build the cities, what they will be built of, where they will be constructed. Impossible to know in this present. Impossible to know anything but the why. I will tell you this. This is why you must build the cities. And the why will bring forth the how. And the how will call to whomever can wield the power and the grace and the mercy of a steward. May God send the means as God sends the light of the sun. May God ordain the stewards for a city needs stewards, not princes. We were a hungry folk once, starved by design to make us a better fit for the machine that knew no rest, no satisfaction, but only a constant burning and turning. In this universe, perpetual motion comes not as a gift, but a cost. And so even our starved selves were insufficient fuel to keep the machine advancing. A hungry mind and a hungry body knows no rest. It yearns, and that yearning extends from the birth of the elders to the last breath of the youth. It spans lifetimes and timelines and makes demands of probabilities, pushing at the boundaries of the universe with a nagging finger. Is it time yet? Is it our time yet? We needed four generations, long enough to wash the taint of trauma from our genes. We wanted four millennia, not of supremacy, but of simple existence to give quiet, bold proof that our dream was possible. We managed for decades, and then enemies fell upon us. Who was it tore us down? Men afraid to die alone, small without the bowed backs of others to stand on, weak without the coddling of servants, and poor without the labor of peasants. They made their civilizations like ever-expanding pyramids, constructed from the bottom up, always dependent on the strength of a new, broader base. Destined to topple in time, they were doomed by design, and their people would turn to conquest of others to delay the date of their own ruin. But I tell it backwards. First, the dream. A city cannot be built in a day, but it must be built every day. Each cycle of decay must be countered by renewal. Each new demand met with a new solution. The environment can be a partner to work with or an enemy to conquer, and the city itself a symbiont or a parasite. You know the path we chose? the path our ancestors would have approved. And you know how difficult that was with so many centuries of having strayed from that path, of having been lured and led from that path. But we wanted our future and we worked for it. We planted the forests of Baobab and Banyan, taught them our names and our needs, our talents and our dreams. The ecosystem kept it stored up for us reminding us not only of ourselves, but also of each other. Instead of consuming each other, we fed each other. And so the chains of commerce became a web of mutual benefit, and economy became ecology. We celebrated our victory and vowed to work even harder, and yet there were matters beyond our borders that gave cause for concern. A few remembered that peace within does not always inspire peace without. We may claim to have tamed jealousy and greed among ourselves, but certain outsiders would be revenged on us for our brazenness. How dare we flourish, survive, exist? But the dangers were yet over the horizon, and the voices of certain elders were ignored. One elder said nothing. He quietly gathered a team of assistants and toiled away at saving the seeds of our forests and fields in a great vault. But why, the people asked him. And he replied, Isn't it obvious? They will try to poison the trees. Remembering now, I am thankful that no one laughed. But there may have been a few faces turned aside to hide a slight smile or an incredulous frown. Remembering now, it makes my heart cold to think how short were the days of peace that remained. The forests did not fall to poison nor to blight, but to the wild malice of fire. The audacity of our enemies is what saved us in the end. They struck with more haste than cunning. Had it been poison, had it been blight, The tainted soil would have taken centuries to recover. But forests know fire, and our knowledge and power were set unseen amid the roots below, waiting and ready for rebirth. We needed no revenge, and we took none. An overextended enemy is his own executioner, and we had only to wait. When we emerged from our strongholds below... The remnants of their shattered empire troubled us little, and then, not at all. So the date of their ruin has come, and now that question, is it time, is it now, has an answer. Yes, yes, our cities will be established again, slowly, day by day, unfolding like a tree that puts forth two new leaves for everyone that dies. Yes, we will prepare for fire and also for blight, whether through chance or through malice. Yes, our generations will be strong and whole. Our children will learn to be better than we are. Yes, our civilization will grow like a forest with strong roots and strong limbs, with leaves sunward, with hopes skyward. Yes. I promised you truths, not facts, not a manual, but a gospel, Not a report, but a myth. Not a request, but an exhortation. I have told it as it happened, and as it will happen. I think he did not appreciate the manner of my telling, but I cannot be sure beyond the fact that I was never paid. The historian's voice was cheerful, though a little cracked and weary and her aged face was charming with the divine mischievousness of tricksters everywhere. Is that why you are in exile now? The reporter asked, leaning forward eagerly. The historian shook her head at his foolish bluntness. This is not exile. This is retirement. The forests extend so far, there is no need to live in any city. Did you know what your story would do? That it would change everything? What did I change? We still draw energy from the sun. We still preserve our names and deeds in the roots of the forests. We still remember how our enemies crept up on us while we were complacent. But you spoke of the enemy within. You warned us about our corruption. I only use the word blight once, maybe twice. The reporter sat back, somehow satisfied within himself. Three times. It was enough. It was the story that started the revolution, the rebirth that transformed us. You said enough. I cannot guess where lightning will strike, nor tell it to start a blaze. But two things I do know. She leaned forward, and her eyes held the young man, not with charm, but with authority. A true tale is like clear water reflecting the hopes and fears of the listeners, and forests, no fires. They will always recover in time. The reporter mused on those two things during his return journey. He emerged from the transport still thinking about the past and the future. He considered the cool stone domes of a modern city, the hidden busyness of its citizens within, and high above it all, the hungry leaves of trees, tasting the sun to fuel and feed the people unto the fourth
2: generation. A true tale is like clear water, reflecting the hopes and fears of the listeners. Those are Dr. Lord's words, not mine. And they get me every time. It feels almost like a mission statement for this show. Ready for more amazing adventures? Try the horror comedy Low Life, in which a chupacabra exterminator and a marine biology student become unlikely allies to solve a monstrous murder in the Florida Everglades. Or check out Gods and Lies, in which an investigator with a damaged reputation reluctantly teams up with a disgraced demigod in order to solve the murder of a mortal both shows are out now and available wherever you get your podcasts so until next time whatever dimension you're in safe travels
0: you're listening to tales beyond time created and produced by realm your portal to another world listen away
1: That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind.
2: This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So
1: if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Tales Beyond Time, Episode 30, features making the world live again written by Kate Elliott, and Cities of the Sun, written by Karen Lord. It is produced by Mary Osadolahi and Marco Palmieri, associate produced by Alexis Latshaw, and executive produced by Molly Barton. Hosted by Marco Palmieri and performed by Rachel Fulginetti and Robin Miles. Audio produced by Mosaic and Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Nicholas Popolio. Cover art by Kendall Thomas.